0: Welcome to The Generalist, a podcast of Canadian occupational therapy perspectives. I'm your host, Jen Talbin I want to know what you want to hear. Connect with me at thegeneralistpodcast at gmail.com. I'm so excited to be speaking with Rochelle Thibault today. An occupational therapist who holds a PhD in psychology, Rochelle specializes in community based rehabilitation, psychological resilience, and peer support in vulnerable populations. For the past 40 years, as a clinician or as part of her teaching and research career at the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, Rochelle has worked worldwide in complex contexts such as war zones and hard-to-access areas. In 2002, she received the Mural Driver Award. In 2013, she was awarded the title of Officer of the Order of Canada, and in 2015, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Canadian Society of International Health and an honorary degree from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Now a consultant on resilience and psychological well-being, she provides training in a broad range of settings from medical agencies and government organizations to student bodies and cancer groups, to name a few. Welcome, Rochelle Thibault. Thank you, it's really a pleasure to, uh, to join you today. It's our honor to have you. Let's jump right in. I want to talk a little bit about meaning-focused evaluation. First of all, what does that mean? It, it's a form of evaluation that's
1: been in the works for about, I was about 20, 20 years now, but it's not really a dominant form of evaluation yet. What it means is that when you want to evaluate a program or process, that you don't go with external indicators, you ask people, their their definition of success. For example, if you set up an OT program, and we're very client-centered, so our evaluations should reflect that. And in fact, it's called in the literature empowerment evaluation, because what's been found is that when we really focus on what's meaningful, it really gives people a much greater sense of uh, empowerment. And it's a man called Fetterman who really wrote most of the literature on this. And his goal was really to do two things at once, to make sure that he would evaluate what really mattered to the people and at the same time to allow for a transfer of power, making sure that the vulnerable people we work with have a sense they have a say in the process. And it differs from regular evaluation which really aims to look at what's called um, result or outcome indicators but the outcomes are usually defined by the organization and in this case the outcomes are really defined by everybody and um, the way it works if you do some kind of an evaluation you will really first kind of identify who are all of the stakeholders, and they will be consulted on what's meaningful for them.
0: Right. So that that sounds like a lot of work.
1: It's a lot of work initially, but what research has shown is that in the long term, you get much better data, Mm -hmm. you you get much better buy-in from the people, and in the end, whatever you're trying to set up will be more sustainable. And it's really recognizing that when people can see, I can, I can just give an example to make it maybe yeah. clearer. I've been working in an area of South Africa where there's a high rate of fetal alcohol um, spectrum disorder. And we've tried to, with local NGOs, to implement programs. And normally, the indicators we were to use were the indicators defined by their uh, Department of Health so what they wanted to see was, you know, better mobility, I mean, longer attention span, etc., etc. But these indicators didn't necessarily speak to the parents, the children, nor the teachers. So in that context, what you do, you go to the teachers and you ask them, what's really meaningful to you? What really makes you believe that you've succeeded, how would you define success when you deal with children with that kind of a profile? And what the teacher said was, when they get into the regular school system, that's the indicator that's really close to our heart. And so that's think, an easy number. They're there they're not. Yeah, exactly. And so we saw that what the teachers were shooting for was really all the skills to make sure that the kids would eventually join into a regular school system. With the parents, we asked them, you know, what really matters to you? And they said, well, we'd like our kids to really develop the skills that would make them more sociable, less volatile, so that family life is going to be more peaceful. That's what mattered to them. And when we asked the kids, it was really to ask, and you, you know, how will we know that the new program we're setting up, that you really like it? And spontaneously, the kids provided two indicators. They said, the first one, you don't have to drag us to the bus stop if we go of our own volition, keen. So one of the indicators was to look at how early the kids would get to the bus stop. They were so keen to get to school. And in school, what they were saying, they said, no, if we have fun. So then we look at how does fun translate into a measurable indicator for a child? And it's going to be attention span. If the child has fun, the child will remain focused for longer. And so we didn't start. And still, the uh, ministry indicators were embedded because they're a stakeholder but so we had the, the indicators from the teachers, from the parents, from the kids themselves, from the, the funders, and from the government. And when you do that, also what happens, it makes the different stakeholders understand the other stakeholders' realities, what matters to them. And you end up creating really constructive conversations between groups who would never speak to each other. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it, in yeah. a nutshell, that's how it works. It sounds so intuitive, at the same time, completely novel to do work that way. So when you're doing that, how do you bring all those people or all those numbers together? Like when you're creating, you know, your final report, like when do you start sharing the views of all the other groups? Is it continuous that you're talking about this is what the teacher said? Or is it once you have some data, how do you navigate those systems? It's it's really continuous
1: because, in fact, we collect data on four types of indicators. The first one is called engagement indicators. So we ask people, how will we know that what we propose is really something that you're enthusiastic about? And, for example, when we asked that question to the teachers, they said, Well, we're going to be willing to put more time into our class prep because we really believe in it. So we look at the time they devoted to class prep. And for us, it was an engagement indicator. If they're willing to put more time in, it's a very good sign. So we asked parents, you know, how will we know that what we, again, what we propose is something you truly believe in? They said, well, we're going to make sure that we relieve the kids from their chores so they have more time to do homework or whatever work is needed for them to succeed in school. So again, something very measurable, but it tells us that people buy into the process. And so we do that with all the stakeholders. And then we go into process indicators. And the question, again, very simple is, what can we do that would make the process much simpler for you and stuff that spontaneously arose was for example parents saying it'd be really neat if the teachers really sent us really really clear descriptions of what they want with the homework Mm -hmm. a lot of the parents come from backgrounds where they were not schooled for very long, if schooled at all. And so they said if we could could have some kind of indication of what's expected of us, that would help us greatly. And then we go into the last two indicators, which are the outcome indicators. So what I was describing initially, you know, more fun or better social skills. And lastly, we go into what's called unexpected outcomes because what we want to do is to capture the impacts of what we're doing above and beyond what we have thought of. And I just, again, give you an example from that context. Our goal was really to make sure that the children would catch up as much as possible with the developmental milestones and eventually going to the regular school system but stuff happened that we didn't foresee. And one of those impacts was that the kids, once they learned learn to read and write, taught their parents. It's not That's at all incredible. we for, but it's something that you still want to capture.
0: You want to make
1: sure that this doesn't
0: get lost. Right. So how do you go about asking those groups? I know I've heard some families coming through that have worked with OTs in the past, and they're, they're always like, they ask about what's meaningful to me or what, what matters or this thing around meaning, but they don't, they're kind of at a place where they don't know where to start and they don't know the options. So how do you balance sharing some of your expertise? What I
1: try to do whenever possible is to build on previous programs elsewhere. And I try to bring in people who have gone through the experience, who have gained from it, and with whom the new group can identify. I give an example when, again, when I started some uh, programs in Zambia, but I know I, I'm pretty much the worst possible transmitter. I mean, I'm a white woman from a wealthy country, from Ottawa, I'm over 60. I mean, I'm all wrong in terms of <laughs> To identify with me, right. And um, so, what I try to do is to bring into the picture someone. And for example, in Zambia, I had worked with two fantastic women in Ethiopia on similar programs, and they became, in fact, the voice, my voice, in many ways. I they had gone through the process; they could explain what it had done for them, and they could replicate what I had done but in a way that was so much more culturally appropriate. And so for them it was very easy to start conversations with the Zambians because they had a whole pool of shared lived experiences. And they start from that, and I'm there in the background, uh, sometimes tweaking the conversation a little bit. And my role, and again with the women from Ethiopia, was also to, I call it open horizons. People who have experienced a lot of learned helplessness because they were really oppressed, they have a hard time dreaming. They really have a hard time generating new possibilities because they always got, (laughs) excuse me, that door slammed in their face when they tried to do it in the past. And so what I do is I try to bring up new possibilities, new avenues. The women who have gone through the process or the the other people who have gone through the process validate it's possible. And so we meet two goals. We can present something that's feasible, that's going to be seen as feasible. And at the same time, we trigger real engagement and enthusiasm because they see it's been done by people very similar to them
0: and does that lead into some peer support
1: yes in fact it's in my view i know i've got a very elastic definition of peer support (laughs) in my view it's a form of peer support people with disabilities who have experienced the same oppression the same neglect the same contempt the same lack of opportunities, I mean, all the occupational injustices they've gone through. And so they get together and the people who are are further along on the path of empowerment and actualization, they become peers and models for the other ones.
0: That's incredible.
1: Really, it's the model that I found the most useful because clearly my experience is extremely limited. I come from the West and I've learned to value a very broad range of competencies.
0: Hmm. Mine
1: are in the field of research, in the field of occupational therapy, but the competence that comes with lived experience is as valuable, if not more. If we don't have that in a program, we're pretty much lost. So I really tend to approach the whole thing as a sharing of competence. Mm -hmm. And we all put them together and we see how we can potentialize our different types of competence, and that's how we move forward.
0: It sounds like such a powerful experience and a powerful process. How do you manage all that? Can you give us some examples from that study? on what opportunities you might have proposed without sounding like a middle-class person from Canada proposing these huge goals? Yeah, I give
1: an example. Some of the women in Zambia thought that the only way they could survive in terms of income-generating activities was begging. It had been drilled into them that if you have a disability, that's pretty much your vocational choice. So you go and you beg. And when the women from Ethiopia came, These women had managed to start up enough income generating activities, small projects. At one point, they were managing, I mean, they started around 2003. And by 2012, I think they were managing in those projects across Ethiopia close to $1 million US in small income generating grants for women with disabilities. And so they came with. The those images, and they had filmed what had happened. Oh, powerful, yeah. So they would show, for example, where they had started from, often, you know, in very poor housing, no running water. And then they were showing that with a decent income, I mean, some of them could share a car. Um, and they even show at one point they had managed to... Gain access to the national TV in Ethiopia, and there was a fashion show all led by women with disabilities. And I'm gonna, it's not something I could offer ever. No. yeah, no, the, the hands down, no way. <laughs> yeah, no way. but these women could because they had gone through the whole thing, they had documented. And they could bring all those occupational choices. And it was stuff from tailoring to accounting to peanut butter factory. I mean, you name it, a whole range of new occupations that the
0: women in Zambia suddenly saw as being within reach. That have never been on the table before. Never on the table before. Yeah. So even if that was your whole intervention and you left, you had probably changed those women's lives forever.
1: Yeah, and in many what I, as an OT working in that kind of context, Mm. I always set it up that I'm not the face of the project because people, if they identify the project with me, it means that when I leave, the whole thing will collapse. So it has to be associated strongly with local leaders. Mm -hmm. So it's their project. I try to do as few consultations in person as possible so I train local people to do them themselves right. so that when I withdraw it's no big deal and often I hope to say that the best compliment I get after a project is you know sometimes when we have the launch of you know the I don't know a small again income generating project and people ask me who are you anyway <laughs> to you. and to me that I my job.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the pat on the back. That's the big celebration yeah. when it's who who's that lady? Yeah. She doing <laughs> In the there? photo, it's framed. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta check the small print to find your name. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> so why this has been around for you said 20 years, documented, people know the process works. Why isn't everyone doing it?
1: I'm going to answer with a very personal Opinion and so it's really strictly mine and it doesn't mean that the institutions i work with uh, endorse it What I did as an OT is that kind of community-based rehabilitation What I've just described is really community-based rehabilitation And as a researcher what I've done. I've really attached to it. What's called participatory action research and participatory action research has been going on for years and Empowerment evaluation and meaningful evaluation stems from it. But within research circles, uh, it's been seen as anathema for years. I mean, if you did parts of reaction research, you were really on the wrong side of the tracks, of the academic tracks. And in my view, it's been a very deep reluctance for academics to share power. And I often say the language of academia, when we talk about subjects, it's a bit like the language of royalty. You know, I'm the expert and I've got my subjects and they will do what I ask them to do.
0: <laughs> Wouldn't that make it easy?
1: No. <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's much easier. Quite frankly, it's much easier. Yeah. But you don't, you don't end at the same place, actually. No, nope. And so the participatory action research is all about, as I was saying, sharing power and sharing expertise. And so what I bring to the table is just a different kind of expertise. And often I won't even know how to use it. So people tell me where they would need that expertise. They know it way better than I do. I often say I'm from from a small town in Quebec. I've got no clue about the lived experiences of people with disabilities in Africa or elsewhere. So they know where they can use me as a tool in their context. And So how do, you too-
0: de- how do you describe that? Because I think that's where a lot of clinicians struggle is, like in that beginning part of saying, the, when the parent or whoever comes in and is like, how, how can you help me?
1: Yeah, actually, what I do, I always around, I try to identify good local leaders who are well-known for their altruism who have been leading in the field of people with disabilities and who have done it not only for themselves but really for their community so and i ask around when i get to a new context and i ask people if you were to work with someone in the field of disability or if you wanted someone to represent you as a person with disability who would you turn to and then i triangulate the data and often it's the same names that will come mm. up over and over again. So I approach these people and they will be, we will be the cluster team that's going to start up something. And, and we have very candid conversation. And I will ask them, for example, yes, you know, as a researcher, as an OT, as a researcher and as a Westerner, I can offer these tools and I may carry a kind of power I may not even be aware of So I said, how would you use me in your context? What would be the best way to use me? And we start from there. And I always learn stuff that baffles me. For example, in some countries where women don't have access to uh, regular banking institutions, although the law allows them to, uh, I was told that people with disabilities couldn't change anything, but someone with American funding, which I had at times, I mean, from the World Bank, someone with funding from the World Bank could put pressure on local banks and open credit for women with disabilities.
0: So that had nothing to do with you being an OT or anything other than being having access to these funds. Exactly,
1: and having access to the upper echelons of society. But in my mind, I mean, I'm just a woman from a small town in Quebec. I had no clue that I could exert that kind of pressure they, i mean i could even ask for an um, a meeting with the president and with the banks i mean who, who knew, knew? <laughs> and not thought, me <laughs> yeah. and, and my, my colleagues told me they said they said they said you can do that and i said you're kidding <laughs> i said i would never carry that kind of power in canada and they said but here you do and you're wow. we want you to use it for the betterment of people with disabilities, mm-hmm. for the empowerment of... But if it hadn't been for that candid conversation, it would have, have never happened. Right.
0: Amazing, yeah. so it had nothing to do with, yeah. But then you're in the circle, everyone, you've got that buy-in with those leaders because you've actually made change. Yeah. Um, do you ever have leaders not wanna join the research? Or parties I- that aren't interested?
1: When I, I speak about research, it's really, what I, what I do is much more, I admit to it in that way, I was never guess much of an academic, because my main purpose was really to make sure that whatever we did stayed on track and will take us where we wanted to go. So it's a lot of what we, what's called monitoring, evaluation, and learning. So the way I did things and still do things, it's just kind of an ongoing learning process. And people are really keen because in that process, as I was explaining, I ask people what matters to them and I tell them that's what we're going to assess. So you're going to see how what's deeply meaningful to you evolves through time with the strategies we choose to adopt to help people with disabilities. And so really people buy in because they want to see how, what they find significant is going to change over time.
0: Right, so it's automatic buy-in. It's just getting yeah. to that conversation. Is that the main, yeah. what's the main stumbling, or what's the main obstacle in starting, the, starting this program? Because it sounds like once you have people in it, everybody is dedicated, but how, how do you get started?
1: The, the main problem, again, because some of my funds initially came from research, some came from research, some came from community development. But the um, in both cases, again, what they tend to do is to define the indicators from their perspectives. Committees at universities decide what they want to see on, in the uh, assessed in the field, same with agencies in Europe and North America, they decide what they want to assess. And often it's deeply at odds with what people find meaningful. And my main obstacle has always been the the fact that I told the funders, I need to meet with the people before I tell, I can tell you what we're going to be evaluating. I don't know, I'm ignorant of their reality. I need meetings with them, so that together we define the indicators. And if you're asking why these strategies haven't really blossomed more, that's the crux of the problem. Because people want to predefine; they want to maintain control over the indicators. And the answers I get most of the time is, well, these people are not schooled that they don't know, they wouldn't know what, what's important, what matters. In fact, they're the only ones who know. <laughs> that's, that's the irony. We don't know. They do. <laughs> Completely,
0: yeah. And coming in from that power and in- inequality lens. Wow. And, it's, and a
1: huge problem comes with ethics committees. And I'm all for ethics, I can, I can assure <laughs> you. But again, because they come from such a strongly entrenched Western domineering uh, perspective, they absolutely refuse for me to connect with people before we choose indicators. They say that they're way too vulnerable. They shouldn't be even talked to before the final research project is completely finished.
0: So you, they can approve exactly what you exactly. say to them, exactly what...
1: Exactly. But the thing is, we don't know before we meet with them. And that's why I never before the people I work with as subjects, for me, they are truly my partners. And so what I've done to come around that a few times, I've had projects where we're something like, you know, 95 partners on the proposal because wow. to me, they are really authentically, genuinely my partners. Yeah. I can't do without them.
0: And then that kind of changes who they are in the ethics of proposal. Mm-hmm. Because it's a research partner versus a subject. Oh, that's a really good loophole. And not a loophole, but I think that's truthful in your work. Yeah. That's how they're seen. So it's not, it's not a loophole per se. It's just an effective way of sharing what you're doing in yeah. the words of <laughs> the people giving you the money yeah. <laughs> and approving it. So what you do, to me... I think I would be a little bit hesitant, a little unsure to go in and give these big ideas and say, hey, together, we're going to get there. We're going to figure out the strategies that are going to work. We're going to continually look at this. It's going to get better. How do you find the strength to do that? Have you ever had projects where you're like, actually, I'm not sure how, like, there's so much uncertainty. You don't even know what your strategies are going into a new culture, a new area. How do you, how do you manage? Do you ever get those feelings and how do you manage them?
1: Uh, there's always a bit of trepidation at the beginning, to be honest, and even after all these years, uh, it's still there, wondering is it's going to work, um, what's going to happen, but I uh, have to say, over the years, it's worked, I mean, very well, I mean, overwhelmingly, it's gone in the right direction. Doesn't mean that there aren't uh, failures and obstacles, often, again, because I don't know the context, in a few occasions, I didn't realize that a subgroup was actually taking the whole group hostage. I didn't speak the local language, and so in the end, the project was kind of uh, biased in favor of a small subgroup. And so I've learned to find strategies to really now have interpreters that from different backgrounds so that I don't get just one perspective, uh, trying to minimize those risks, but clearly, uh, there are risks, and sometimes there have been failures. Yeah, right. And I guess, like anything in life, you have to be willing to risk it if you want to get anywhere. Uh, we don't go very far when we stay in the comfort zone.
0: Right. And I think that's where, at least in my view, that "do no harm" kind of language and that kind of perspective in healthcare is—you know—you don't want to risk something. But that you think that's holding us back in academia or in clinical practice at some points?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, we have to make sure that we do no harm, and also a tool I use in the projects it's an um, a decision making grid for ethical issues. And it was, it was created by a guy called David Seedhouse, And I love that grid because with the group, again, with the, the team, we really go through that grid and we try to look at what we're about to do from all possible ethical angles. And again, to minimize risks, but at the same time, to make sure that we are going to move forward. And sometimes it's a fine line because in some places, for example, if you try to increase the economic power of women, you know that they need that for their health. I mean, to be able to have enough money to buy food and clothing and meds. But at the same time, we know that they have, if they become too wealthy in brackets, (laughs) there will be a huge backlash from men so they can get beaten up. So you have to walk that fine line and talk about possible harm. And again, with the people involved, the women have to be there mm-hmm. and decide if they want to take the risk or not, because ultimately it's their lives. But we have to be extremely cautious and make sure that we unpack all possible angles before we really go further.
0: Right. And so this sounds like a time-consuming part of your research or part of this intervention or community-based solution, whatever we want to call it. How do you get the right people in the room?
1: Again, it's really word of mouth asking about who are the people who really shown as leaders uh, when it came to the rights of people with disabilities and interventions, and preferably it's be really people with the disabilities themselves, because we really want, again, to increase empowerment and create models people can identify with. When I get to a new community, I just ask around. I will go from NGO to NGO, people who have been worked, working in the field of disability and ask them whom they would recommend. And then I visit people with disabilities. I could go drop by a rehab center and asking, you know, you know, if you need help, who would you turn to outside of the healthcare establishment uh, and sometimes inside the healthcare establishment? And so it's all that informal knowledge that I try to weave together and then identify key people who will be really well-versed in local culture, who will have the lived experience of having a disability in the said culture and are known
0: for their ethics. Right. And then do you do like 10 different little groups or do you try, is it important to bring all of the stakeholders into the same room or does it just depend on logistics and case by case?
1: It depends, it's really case by case. The ideal is really to try to have a meeting with all the stakeholders. Clearly that's going to be more complicated with COVID now. That's uh, even though my work here has been impacted with, with that. There's a lot of in-person sharing that can no longer take place. But in some contexts, it's not necessarily, I mean, COVID that's at play. It could be really deeply entrenched social strata where people don't necessarily cross those unwritten rules. I I give an example, working with people with leprosy, even if you have... Representatives, let's say from the Ministry of Health or from other uh, community agencies, they are such a deep prejudice against people with leprosy that a lot of people won't come in the same room with them. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's kind of a similar experience of this no shared space.
1: Yeah. So it's really case by case. You see, your goal is to bring as many people together so that you get the best possible understanding of an issue and get, get all the different voices heard from the different stakeholders. But you have to work with what's there. And if there's a lot of social resistance, you may have to uh, bend to it.
0: Hey, generalists. If you want more OT conversations, check out otpodcast.com for a listing of occupational therapy podcasts from around the world that's otpodcasts.com You do a lot of global community-based practice. What do you think the lessons are in your in that work for the Canadian landscape?
1: What I've learned I mean I've worked as an OT here uh, for several years before going overseas I think overseas I think I had close to 15 years of experience before I started doing community-based rehab work, but overseas. I had done some even in Canada, in Nova Scotia, in the Northwest Territories, but overseas Mm -hmm. it took me a bit longer. And I realized that the the community-based experience has taught me to listen a whole lot more than I used to before, and to respect Meaning in its different guises with people, a whole lot more too. And I just give an example. I mean, in my early years as an OT, uh, working with people with strokes, I may have insisted that someone, you know, we learn how to dress or how to wash and be really, really stuck on those uh, occupations.
0: Well, it's on your evaluation, right? Of what you have to take off when they're done.
1: (laughs) And then coming back years later with more of those field uh, experiences my approach would be very different for example I would ask someone what someone would stroke what uh, is really meaningful to you and if the person told me well golfing is what matters to me I would say fine let's practice you know your golf um, strokes let's start with that and once they got better and wanted to go to the golf course well, Maybe you should get dressed to go there. So let's see how you can get dressed. I really restructure my whole interventions around meaning more than I thought I was doing before. I realized I wasn't sticking to meaning as much as I thought.
0: Right. You could see the link of getting dressed means he gets to go to the golf course, but the the client didn't or your partner didn't therapy didn't okay
1: and it's only when the possibility to go to the golf course became more imminent that the enthusiasm the engagement for learning how to get dressed really arose
0: yeah yeah so how do you i have a lot of people that when i ask the meaningful questions or like what matters to you or those sorts of ideas they're not they don't know whether it was from too much, they've been in, you know, trauma recently or they're exhausted or lots of reasons why it's hard to reflect on those big goals of those dreams. And especially if they've already had assessment by a few other practitioners and are kind of in the healthcare mode that we create, what are some, do you have any like side questions? Do you have any ways that you come about that conversation?
1: Yeah. Some of the questions I use are, for example, um, I ask them what they use to really, really, really like doing. Um, I ask them what they really like to do when they're, they really have energy, what they really like to do and arrange. And I really ask them to project themselves in the future, telling them, mm-hmm. you know, where would you like to be in two months time and in a year's time? And then we unpack what they name and that's how we get to meaning, what's meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. I often ask them, the people, uh, who they admire. Uh, Name the players they really admire and why they admire them. So that's another path to get to meaning. Um, If uh, I ask them to uh, describe to me their perfect day from sunrise to sunset. So I really have different strategies, but they all get to the same place.
0: I think a lot of time when we get... Turn down on that meaning question, people go back to the checklist. So it's nice to have a few of your ideas just kind of percolating and oh well no, that's not it's not on them to know exactly where they want to go. Sometimes we have to do the the supplementary work to get them there, to get yeah. that dream, to get that goal. Amazing. How do you pick who you're gonna work with? I know justice is a big part of your work. And there's a lot of groups that are experiencing injustice, occupational injustice. How do you know where to go next and what are some hints for OTs right now of how they can really be a part of making the world more just?
1: The, I know in, in my case, I have agencies coming to me to ask me what I, if I want to work with them. But more and more, it's really individuals or small groups who approach me. But what I do too is to go out there and tell people what an OT can offer. For example, with COVID, I I really wanted to contribute something. And so I called around and saying, I'm an occupational therapist. I have this, I described our skill set, And I said, could you put me to use somewhere in the organization? And some organizations have replied, um, picking on different, most of what I've been asked to do since COVID has to do with mental health. Mm-hmm. So, how I could really follow people, accompany people in the community, who uh, to help them regain a better occupational balance, because they've been working flat out and they really have a hard time finding breathing space. Uh, so, as an OT, I was used to to do that, to look at occupational balance and pacing and all that. And I was asked also as an OT to uh, help people um think about what's meaningful what they should give priority to in their lives uh in times of covid uh so all kinds of small programs where i ended up being attached to
0: right and that was that more one-on-one with clients or was that more training the trainers or what kind of system was that
1: all of that there's been one-on-one and there's been um training the trainers. I was asked to set up peer support programs, Mm. but I really do them uh, really embedded with around the new neuroscience on compassion. And I use a lot also of the literature on uh, meaningful occupations, or sometimes they're called eudaimonic activities in the scientific literature, but really making sure that I those peer support groups are not just around sharing verbally, but mm-hmm. whenever possible to do stuff together or to report about the occupations they've been doing. Right. Really embed all this in the very real fabric of
0: life. Beautiful. And how do you get organizations to buy into that? It's, are they usually eager?
1: Usually they're quite open. I tend to describe what we do as OTs. Over the past few years, I've read a whole lot more about ecology and all the ecological systems. And I really see OTs as a form of mycelium. Mycelium being all the root system that's really out of sight, but it's the main system that really feeds a lot of the plants. They, they bring nutrients, they facilitate growth, they, do, they enable a lot of the chemical functions of life. And for me, it really rang as a, as a nice analogy for occupational therapists, we are not necessarily seen, but all that we do is around connecting, connecting mm-hmm. to life, connecting to meaning, connecting to function.
0: Connecting to others.
1: Yeah, to each other. I feel we're kind of the mycelium of the of the healthcare field.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's a good good little animation in my brain now, just the little OT mycelium. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned compassion. I know that's part of and the new research around compassion—I know that's really built into your view of resilience. Can you share a little bit more about your work on resilience and the, and the five C's?
1: The 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 five C's really came from my work again with vulnerable populations over a period of almost forty years. That and what I was looking at was really what helped people bounce back after after war, after torture, after an earthquake, after. Um, imprisonment, I mean, everything that you can see in, um, when lives are deeply disrupted. And so over the years, I collected stories and data around what really helped people bounce back. And it led to the five Cs. So I found that generally people, the really resilient people, will have embedded in their lives Five different kinds of activities of occupations. The first one is about, uh, and again, it's the people, my partners, who chose the vocabulary. So the first one has to do with um, sense of peace and centeredness. So the activities for centering have to do with getting rid of our anxiety. We're all bear within us. Uh, ourselves a form of anxiety that acts as a screen between us and our capacity for mindfulness. Mm-hmm. We're going about life a bit frazzled and <laughs> frenetic and um, we need to settle. So centering is all about evacuating the anxiety and just learning to settle. So it's really you have two kinds of centering activities. You can do a really vigorous physical activity. So you get it out of your system and then you feel that you can enter, um, I would say, a space of mindfulness. You're much more capable of going there. But the other um, type of centering activity is actually any kind of um, cleaning, ordering activity. I mean, if you... Uh, For example, if you see piles of dirty dishes on the counter, as you wash your dishes, you feel that a sense of inner peace and order is coming into place. And so centering, we need to do in order to be more mindful in life. And so the second C is about contemplation, being able to be mindful. And we know that to be well neurologically, we need about...
0: A half an hour of silence and solitude a day. So wow, things. half an hour. Yep, yep. Of sol- silence or solitude. Yep,
1: something to do something where we're not really not scrolling. That scrolling. doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Computers, cell phones don't count for that. <laughs> yeah. But you can still move. I mean, if you do, for example, I do what I call contemplative swimming. You just get into the zone. You swim, so you move, but your mind is at peace. You, you reflect on your breathing. You come back to the breath, and you swim. So it doesn't mean necessarily that when you do mindfulness, you've got to be sitting on a cushion and meditating, but you need to have those 30 minutes a day to fully activate some centers in the brain that will in turn trigger different um, neurotransmitters that will have a huge impact on mood.
0: That's huge. I don't think I've ever heard it in like that exact amount. Like everyone knows, yeah, being mindful is great, but 30 minutes of silence or solitude, like we hear about physical activity every day. We hear about the number of fruits and vegetables we should eat. Why isn't that public everywhere?
1: And and it should, and it's all the new research, for example, from the Center for Healthy Minds at um, in Madison, Wisconsin. A lot of research has come from the Max Planck Institute um, and all top-notch neuroscientists who have clearly demonstrated that we need that and that we are actually falling into lifestyles where we end up with massive um, shortages. <laughs> no. Yeah,
0: because yeah. I think that's the n- sure. first thing I work with people on. Any, and Always occupational balance. But that's the thing. is They don't have time to rebalance. They don't even have time to breathe. They don't feel like they have time to do anything. So I feel like that little nugget is going to be so powerful in just reframing everything for people.
1: Yeah, it's uh, huge. And in fact, when we speak of resilience, uh, mindfulness is the um, mm-hmm. at the very core of resili- uh, resilience. If you you're not mindful, you won't be resilient. That's
0: and I think... Sure. A lot of people are hearing this mindfulness term or meditation term, but that seems unreachable. But this silence or solitude, I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard to be that and not be mindful. So I, th- I feel like that is a much easier just right challenge for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, and it could be something as simple yeah. as soaking in the tub with a candle. Mm-hmm. I mean, nothing complicated
0: to it. Or going for a walk or the forest <laughs> bathing ideas, all those. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Okay, continue on. I'm fascinated.
1: <laughs> well, that was the more of the... Uh, the uh, contemplation, meditative um, occupations. Um, The third one has to do with creativity. And we know it when we create something, there's a real sort of energy. We can really feel good about it when we finish a nice recipe. And again, it doesn't have to be art. I mean, if I've cooked a real good dinner, there's a deep sense of satisfaction. If I've done great in my garden, you know, that my... I don't know, my roses are growing really well. There's, that again, that sense of satisfaction. Um, And even what research has shown, even something as banal as choosing to write an email without making, I mean, making sure that it doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, that it's nicely phrased. It's the intention to really create something that's good and beautiful that triggers what's called positive neuroplasticity. Just wanting to write a lovely email will trigger in my brain a whole slew of reactions that ultimately will construct my resilience.
0: I think that's a good tip for any budget confirmations or billing emails. Just, just take that little reframe of how we can make this as enjoyable and as compassionate as possible. Awesome, yeah.
1: Yeah. The the fourth one is uh, connectedness. And again, we know all the occupations that really connect us to others or to life, Uh, taking care of an animal, um, you know, tending a garden. So connecting with life also uh, will build our resilience. And the last one is contributing, giving back. And that's where the new research on compassion really fits in. um, Over the past, I guess it's about three years now, a lot of research has been published. There's, among other things, the um, Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, and lots of stuff that's deeply rooted in neuroscience, the neuroscience of empathy, compassion, and self-compassion. And what they teach us is that when we choose, in fact, to offer well-being, and it's been found to be our best tool to prevent burnout in healthcare personnel. I don't know about you, but in the olden days, I was trained to really show empathy to patients, and the mode of relating was empathy, which meant that if I saw suffering, I would really allow myself to resonate with that suffering. Mm -hmm. What's been found is that not, I mean, without obviously collapsing on the patient's lap, we agree on that, on the client's lap, but we would experience resonance. And what's been found is that the best way of relating to our clients is to allow that empathy to surface so we have that resonance, but to make sure we don't stay there. When we stay in an empathic relationship, We trigger in our brain two structures, the cingulate cortex and the insula, and they are the centers associated with pain in our brain. So it means that if I resonate too much, I activate the pain centers in my brain and I ache, and that ache will make me burn out. If, on the other hand, I move one step up to compassion, this is my best protection against burnout. So I will allow, again, empathy to take place. I will resonate. But instead of staying focused on the pain, resonate with the pain, wanting to alleviate the pain, I suddenly try to imagine the kind of well-being I can offer. Mm-hmm. And it sounds trivial to say just to switch in my immaterial thought just that switch, in fact, activates a whole different range of brain structures and it really leads to resilience. So, if my intention when I'm working clinically, when I, I feel that suddenly I start feeling destabilized by the suffering, the distress I witness, if I can reframe with the question, what kind of well being can I offer? it suddenly diffuses the brain, the pain centers in my brain and it activates the well-being ones.
0: Mm, so just pivoting and how can I help? Yeah. How can I
1: help? How can I? What,
0: yeah, and really trying to
1: mentally visualize the well-being, uh, that person experiencing
0: well-being. Right. So visualizing their well-being. And then do you have to take a step? Do you have to do something? Like whether it's a small gesture or or just thinking about it.
1: Ideally, compassion, and it's in the definition of compassion, compassion is really the embodiment of the intention. So it means that I will have to say kind words. It means that I may just put my hand on the shoulder. I will have a small gesture. It may be just opening the window for someone, uh, but I will act even in a very small way, but I need that action to fully fall into a compassionate mode.
0: Perfect. So linking that that positive yeah. thought, that well-being thought to a small gesture because yeah. little yeah. steps go yeah. for go for miles. Yeah. So and that works for us. And then sharing that with clients, how do you go? Do you help them experience it first and then kind of backtrack the steps? Do you skip the steps once they're doing all five C's? What's kind of your what's your thoughts around how do we share this information?
1: The five five C's, what I do, I I simply uh, include them in my initial conversations with uh, clients. But again, I use a vocabulary that makes it uh, more, I mean, easier for them to understand. I really want to bring it very close to the daily life. So for example, with centering, I would ask them, when you feel really anxious, what works? to make you feel better? What do you do? And then we try to tease out what's healthy, what isn't. Mm-hmm. For example, people will tell me, I empty the fridge. You need, I need everything in sight. Maybe not the best strategy. So can you think of other strategies that help you alleviate your anxiety? And if they don't come up with the answers, I will suggest, you know, why, why don't we try that, just cleaning up the room a little bit and see how it feels, so that they have an experiential anchor a resonance. Mm-hmm. And I ask them to do it in a more mindful way so that they can grasp what it does to them. For contemplation, I really tell them it's important to stay, to find a way to feel more at peace inside, to really feel that you take, you step back for all the business of life. And I ask them how they do that. Same thing with creativity. I ask them, you know, what did you like Doing stuff that you do and you're really proud of, and so all the questions that bring the concepts down several notches from being strictly cognitive, but mm-hmm. really embodies them in actions. Right,
0: and especially if you know them already, you can say, "Hey, this is an example of what you've told me about," and give them that yeah. kind of shape of yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. For clinicians that are working in a more individual kind of role right now. What would be your kind of tips for them to either have more compassion in their role or resilience building built into what they're doing? Or how do they make it more community-based? Which which way do you want to tackle it?
1: <laughs> I think I would really start with the individuals because that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. And and I would say from what I've seen in the system, especially since COVID, to me the first step would be self-compassion. Mm. I've connected with quite a few OTUs. Uh, who gave a lot of themselves, they had been relocated into different um, job situations. And and I think self-compassion is really, really key. And self-compassion is very simple. In fact, it's really asking oneself the question, if someone I deeply love were in my situation right now, what would I tell them to do? and then apply that to oneself. Would I tell them to keep going until they're totally flattened? Would I tell them to take some time for themselves, uh, to be kind to themselves? And so really trying to be kind to ourselves first. Right. That's the, the starting point. And then just trying to embed very small gestures of compassion in, in daily life, asking the question, where can I make a small difference? Not shooting for anything big, but a small difference. And again, what research tells us, it really, there's a lot of neuroplasticity associated with that strategy. And bit by bit, we actually change our brain, we change our behaviors, and we will be able to tackle larger issues, but it's all a matter of learning how to do it on small issues initially. Right. A woman who's had a huge influence on me, she's an American physician, and she's written two books. She's called Rachel Naomi Remen, and they're just stories, nothing else. But she's the embodiment of compassion, and she's written two books. One is called My Grandfather's Blessings, and the other one is called uh, Kitchen Table Wisdom. And for healthcare personnel, they're so good. I know in my life, I, I mean, my books are falling apart, but very often I just go back to those books. I read one story, and it's as if, again, it allows for a deep sense of centering. And, and in these stories, that's what she models how to show compassion in a small way that in the end will bring much bigger impacts.
0: Those sound like beautiful stories and good practice when you can't get there yourself, a little sidestep. Yeah. And do you have any tips for clinicians that are trying to, they believe in the community-based practice and maybe they're working in many legal situation or they're in um, with different funders that don't quite view the same way. How do we support that community-based thinking and that connectedness? I
1: think for people who are maybe a bit at odds with their, the organizations, to me there have always been two strategies. The first one is to assess if I was at odds morally or if I was at odds logistically. If I was at odds morally, I, to me it was something that needed to be resolved and quickly. We know in terms of resilience that being at odds morally is the most dangerous psychological situation we can encounter. That's what's going to bring us down. And so if we are asked to do something that we find reprehensible, it's really the beginning of the end. And so we need to stop and reassess. That's really, really key. And more and more, we talk also about moral injuries. So we have to be very vigilant about that. If we're at odds logistically, so doing stuff maybe not in the way we would like them to do, what I've always done, I mean, in both cases, obviously, the first strategy is to try to have an open conversation. If it doesn't work with the moral issue, often it's really to quit. Unfortunately, there's not too many ways about it. If you're at odds morally, you may have to leave your position. Right. If you're at odds logistically and you don't have any power to change what's being done, I always try tell people that what's needed is to focus. And the data is there for that. It's all research that came out there three years ago again. It's the work of Shana Felt, a physician who's worked on burnout. And what he identified is that when it's rough at work, we need, to pinpoint the 20% in our work that's truly meaningful mm. and make sure that we focus on it. And what China felt research has shown is that if we're aware of that 20%, we really savor that 20%, it's going to protect us from burnout.
0: It's not the mm. ideal. That's it, that- 20% of your job.
1: Yeah, and it was quite a surprise in uh, research because we had always thought it was the opposite ratio, that you needed 80% of very meaningful work to tolerate 20% of logistical frustrations. And we've realized it's the opposite. With just 20%, you're fine, but clearly you want more than that. I mean, 20% yes. will keep your head above water, but it's not necessarily how you want to live.
0: That's really interesting because that's a similar ratio of attachment. If you yeah. have to respond 20% of the time correctly to be yeah. healthy attachment. So yeah. I wonder if that's related. Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff.
1: And so we t- tell these people, focus on your 20%. Try to build on it um, if you don't have any control over the logistical issues.
0: I love that because it makes it clear cut. Is it moral or logistical? And I think that's where a lot of people are living kind of on that borderline, whether it's, you know, their patients that they, or their clients or whoever they're working with, their coworkers, whoever it might be that are keeping them there, or these pieces that, oh, if I leave, what's going to happen to these people that I'm serving? But that's not part of the equation. It's where's the Mm -hmm. issue? Is it moral? Or I feel like that's going to clear up just really challenging and sticky situations. It's going to like be a great lens to use. Just to simplify it.
1: Uh, and clearly it might have also, you might have in there, I mean, personality conflicts that fuel the, uh, <laughs> the fire, but yeah. So right. you have to look
0: at two. too. Great. Oh, that's such good concrete things. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote an article or a quick little note for occupational therapists without borders. And it's such a powerful quote. Um, if anyone wants to look it up, just OT Without Borders in your name and it pops up. I might link it in the show notes just because I think it's a great description of OT. But you talk about this concept of serving versus helping and weakness versus wholeness. Do you think you can explain that for our listeners?
1: Yes. um, When you help people, and again, some of those concepts came uh, from Rachel Neumie-Raman in her stories that I was talking about. And so when we help, it's because we see someone lacking something. There's, yeah, there's something lacking, they need my help. Uh, serving is much more neutral. Serving is something I want to contribute, and not necessarily in light of other people lacking something. And so it means that in my approach, what I see is not the shortcomings, of the person I'm going to be in contact with, I see the wholeness and I want to contribute to that wholeness. I'm not there to go plug a hole. Helping is much more about plugging a hole. Serving is about making wholeness blossom. And to me, that's the main difference. And people feel it. And again, I don't have time to go into all the new research in neuroscience and elsewhere, but, People pick up the intent we have when we approach them. They will feel if we come in with the intent to help, because again, they have shortcomings and they need me. And they will feel if I approach them in the spirit of serving, that I, I acknowledge their wholeness and I really want to, well, yeah, and I want to contribute to, uh, to it.
0: To add to it, not to fill gaps, not to change things, just to contribute to what they've already got going on. That's great. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Do you have a favorite OT story or a story you'd like to share with our listeners? There's one I would
1: really like, (coughs) excuse me, to share. And it it happened a long time ago. I won't say (laughs) where, Uh, but I was um, working in palliative care at the time. At the beginning of my career, And in these, in the olden days, palliative care wasn't really what it is now. I mean, today we know that we want to really control pain and comfort and we pay attention to meaning. In its early incarnations, palliative care was a bit more nebulous than that. And um, on the unit where I worked, The paradigm that dominated was the functional paradigm, that people needed to remain functional pretty much till their last breath. And had been trained as an OT again to really focus on function. Before we paid attention to meaning, we were quite focused on function. And at one point I was caring for a fairly young woman. She was in her mid-30s, dying of cancer. She had bone metastases. And one of my jobs as an OT was to try to have her get dressed uh, every day and to have her walk um, in the corridor several times a a day, which was excruciating for her, absolutely excruciating. And I could feel, I was talking about being at odds with one moral values. I was so deeply uncomfortable And I really tried to question the status quo. Didn't go over too well in those days. You didn't question what the the function paradigm. And I got to a place where I had to quit. I couldn't tolerate inflicting pain as a therapist. It was so outside my, my understanding of my role. And I was really judged harshly for questioning the status quo in those days, but Time has proved that the core values that we have were actually the right ones. Palliative care today is totally different. And none of what I was supposed to do would even be tolerated on a palliative care unit. And so I've learned two lessons that, again, I have to make sure that I remain well aligned with my moral values. It's going to be, it's the most important thing in, in life. And the second thing is that we shouldn't be afraid of questioning the status quo that our gut feelings are often the right ones and it may take a long time before we get validated but ultimately we do That's great
0: yeah Is there anything right now that you think what's the most recent thing you're questioning
1: The again to me I'm working in the healthcare system following covid and To me, it's that top-down tendency, wanting to evaluate the needs of people who have been at the front lines. And you have all those questionnaires and surveys coming from people who haven't been there. And to me, it's, again, a manifestation of a paradigm that shouldn't be the only one. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have some top-down questionnaires, but we need to ask the people who have the lived experience. They are the ones in the know.
0: So you can um, create the structure to gather more information. Like it's great to exactly. gather from a lot of people, but who's making the, the questions?
1: That's right. We need both a, a bit of top down and a whole lot of bottom up and for them to meet halfway. But right. what I question still strongly is that top down approach that I still see being the main one being applied.
0: Yeah. And I think that's true in a lot of our work, whether it's who we're setting goals for, are we really setting them for our clients? Or are we setting them for the funding and who's setting the goals and all those kind of pieces? And how are we writing these functional things for funding or all those kind of logistical pieces that are, you know, baby steps that we can question along the way while still feeling good about our work. Do you have any tips for making change or for questioning that's been more effective than others?
1: I know in my experience, what's been the most effective is always to come back to the suffering that's experienced. The greatest, how could I say, the greatest equalizer is suffering. If someone speaks about suffering that I can recognize, if I can again find a resonance. In what I'm doing now, what I'm trying to do is to have people from the front lines, speak of their suffering to the decision makers and I try to have the decision makers remember times where they experienced similar suffering and when you get that resonance it's in fact one of the deepest human bonds you can get and when you get you bring people to that space and again and when you explicitly say now that we've identify the suffering and it's not whims it's not it's really something real then we can move into how can we provide well-being you know what kind of comfort can we offer but we need first that resonance and again your science has been studying that phenomenon and validated that it's one a very good starting point to for making changes
0: So how do you do that? I I can see a room of people in suits, and then you have this story of suffering. How do you get them there?
1: One of the meetings I was leading recently through Zoom, I asked people, before we got into the decision-making strategy, to take about 30 seconds and report on the story they had found the most moving around COVID and COVID and workers who had been on the front lines. So everybody came up, uh, there were six people around the table, and 30 seconds, so that was very brief, just a matter of a few minutes. And they all each spoke of either something they had experienced within the organization or they had seen on the news. And it totally changed the tone. And because, because you have people coming in wanting to really very adversarial. I mean they want and they want their rights and and I'm not saying that I'm against you know fighting for one's rights, but they come with that from a perspective of confrontation. When you do that, they come they arrive into a perspective of collaboration. And that's the shift you want to see.
0: Right. And that just must be like you've created relationship in that group. Not yeah. only with you, but within the decision makers or within the policymakers. So that is a really powerful activity and quick. Like what was that? Three minutes? You said thirty yeah. seconds each transition time, yeah. five minute activity. Better yeah. than any icebreaker. Yeah, and, and because
1: everybody was coming and speaking about a form of suffering that had been experienced by healthcare workers, it really set the table
0: mm-hmm. of why yeah. the work matters, what we're doing yeah. here, what's the end yeah. goal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. beautiful. And I feel like you could use that in any setting, really. Yeah. At the end of the day, we want to be doing well-being more than what what is this word? Health, right? We're looking at that well-being. I think that's a great shift to explain what we do. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, this has just been my my OT heart is just... (laughs) I am so grateful to have as much time as I've had with you. Um, Do you think you'd be up for some rapid fire questions. These are just five questions I kind of ask at the end of the interview. Just the first thing that kind of pops to your head. What guides your practice?
1: I would say three things um, that I've mentioned already. Meaning, I think we really have to stick to meaning. Mine and the the meaning of the people I accompany. Ethics, making sure, as you mentioned, I mean, do no harm, making sure. And uh, compassion. So to me, it's really important to cultivate more and more compassion, especially in light of everything that I'm learning currently.
0: Great. How do you describe OT, or how do you describe your role? To me,
1: it's really I really see OT as a profession that we meaning into people's lives and into communities that we are really there to bring meaning up in a very explicit manner and help cultivate it. Great.
0: What advice would you give yourself when making a move in your OT career? I really like that
1: question. I've for, again, about 40 years now, I've always had the same four questions that I ask myself every time I've changed um, jobs or cities, whatever. The first one is, will my choice allow me to be authentic, to respect, to be true to myself? For example, I've turned down uh, promotions where I would have needed to become someone I'm not. So my first question is about being true to myself. The second is about growth, is what am I going to choose allow me to grow. I don't want to stay in the comfort zone. The third one is really is what am I going to, what I'm going to choose will allow me to give back, making sure it's not just a narcissistic endeavor. And the fourth one is, am I going to have fun? Because fun matters too.
0: (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad you put that in there. That's so great. Am I going to have fun? Am I going to grow? Am I going to work hard? Am I going to serve? And it's going to be a good time. Love it.
1: Exactly. (laughs) How do you take care of you? I really try to do what I preach. So I try to really embed the five C's in my life. I do a formal, I've been doing formal meditation for over 40 years. It's really important in my life. I really try to connect to all forms of life. I mean, animals and plants and I garden. I really try to, yeah, to do stuff that's more creative, pottery and writing So to me, it's my way of taking care of myself in a very OT way, having those five key occupations really becoming, again, the fabric of my life.
0: Right. And what about Our Work Fills Your Bucket?
1: To me, it's really the sense of connectedness I get with with others. I find it's energizing, it's invigorating, and I feel it opens up so many new horizons that it's really in that contact and that connectedness that all kinds of new ideas pop up. And uh, so it, it to me, it really fills my bucket at the, the moment we connect, but it also fills my future bucket with ideas and
0: projects. So
1: connectedness is really key.
0: Well, thank you so much. This has been just amazing for me to get to interview all morning <laughs> or afternoon yeah, yeah, good yeah <laughs> thank you so much thank you Take good to a good day. you too bye. bye thanks for tuning in i would love to hear from you if you have any ideas for the show or if you'd like to be a guest please email me at thegeneralistpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or connect with me through the website at thegeneralist.podbean.com that's the generalist with a j music in today's episode is by David Hyde.